Well, several months ago, or several weeks ago, I should say, we actually started a series going through the book of uh, Hebrews, particularly chapter 11, and trying to understand what God's been trying to say to these people uh, that are living in the first century, going through difficult times in life. And one of the things that the writer of Hebrews really wants to do is to convey to them that really God is just as big today uh, in the first century as he was way back in the day when you heard the stories from grandma and grandpa. You know, we all kind of remember, you know, maybe when you were young, you had grandpa tell stories, you know, like back when I was a kid, I'd walk 50 miles to school, barefoot, uphill, both ways, in the snow, it was horrible, yet God helped me, or whatever. You know, you always hear these stories about this gnarly feats that people go through. Sometimes, you know, we look at things like that in our day, and we're like, okay, you know, things aren't like that anymore, and, you know, maybe God doesn't work today the way that it used to work way back then, or, you know, we can read the book of Acts with sort of idealism in mind. We have this perspective that maybe God did bigger, better, greater, grander, more glorious things way back in the first century when the church was really good, right, and uh, maybe just doesn't do that stuff anymore today. And uh, in reality, obviously the church is really no different today than it was back then. It's just as carnal, uh, just as messed up, just as dysfunctional as it was way back when. And the reality is, as well, that God is the same God as he always has been. It's the same God that used Moses to raise a staff to part the Red Sea. The same God that uh, literally asked Abraham to raise his hand to slay his son and stop his hand at the very last minute to say that I'm going to provide a sacrifice myself, the same God that conquered mighty armies through the hand of a guy like Gideon, same God that, as we're going to see today, allowed the old, <laughs> extinct womb of a 90-year-old lady to have a baby. Her name is Sarah. That's who we're going to be looking at here today. And the point of the matter is, is to really try to uh, help the faith of those that are questioning, where's God? To be reignited, to be reinvigorated. Because reality is that we kind of are the same way. We tend to look around and we're wondering like, you know, where's God in my life? How come God's not doing things in my life? I keep asking him, keep praying for him to do stuff. I keep begging him. I keep, you know, looking into him. And that's what the pastor said or my Bible study person told me to do or my grandma told me to keep being faithful. I've done it for the past four days and nothing's happened. You know, where's God? And we have sort of these, this tendency to pull back. And just wonder, is God even working today? Is God even alive today? Is God even at, you know, work in our lives or in the lives of other people today? And, and that's what we need to really understand, that yes, he is. Yes, God is at work. Yes, God is still doing things today as he did back in the first century of the church, as he did way back in the stories of these great people of old. That's the point. He's a God that is the same, as the New Testament would say, yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. He's the same God. So in other words, we can expect, here's some things that we can expect as we sort of preface all this. We can expect God to act really the same way that he always has. You know what else we can expect with that? We can expect to sometimes have to wait long times for any type of fulfillment. You know that? That's the reality. And it's hard for us to come to grips with that especially because of the way that we're conditioned in our culture. We are very conditioned to expect instantaneous results. I mean, instantaneous results. The moment we press the button, something's going to happen. Hot pocket will be done. Channel will be changed. Something will take place. Everything is instantaneous in our culture, right? 
And so when it comes to applying that same mentality to God, we get very frustrated. In fact, we sometimes end up throwing in the towel altogether, just in a lot of ways cursing God and walking away frustrated because God did not perform in the time frame that I had given him. Or we walk away sometimes and we think God just did not answer my prayer. And the reality is, is that God always answers prayer. And what we're going to find out today is that God always answers prayer. And his prayer is either yes, no, or you're going to have to wait a bit. Always. So you're like, God's not answering my prayer. He is answering your prayer. You might not like the answer. He may have said no, and you're really upset with him. And you're throwing down threats. Or God says, you've got to wait a little bit. And you're like, what's a little bit? God might, as you see like with Sarah, he might be like 25 years. And you might not like that and you get frustrated. Sometimes God may say yes, but God always answers prayer. So with that being said, we're going to begin to take a look at the story of Sarah. So if you guys open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to launch by reading chapter 11, verse 11, on down about verse 16. And then we're going to immediately jump in, get to work on the narrative or the story of Sarah. And what I mean by that is the way that the book of Hebrews is written, the way the writer of Hebrews writes, is he writes with the expectation that his audience already knows what he's talking about in terms of the stories. In other words, he writes with a sense that the people reading this book already have a familiarity with the story. So when he writes about Abel, he already assumes you know who Abel is. He writes about Noah. He assumes you already know who Noah is, Enoch, Abraham, and so Sarah. I'm not going to assume that much because especially we have a tendency where we might know little stories about some people. We might think Noah was that little guy that you know, got in that nice little boat with a draft with his head sticking out, a little flannel board, a nice little dove coming down, and everything was nice, and the sky was blue, and everything was wonderful. When in reality, that's, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. People died. It was horrible. It's one of the reasons why I think we make it all sanitized and nice, because we don't want our kids to have little nightmares. What happened with Noah? Millions and billions of people died in a horrible death. Have a great night's sleep. You know, we, we try to sanitize it. We're like, mm, there's a beautiful day, and there are doves flying around, and the sea was gentle, and there's, you know, there's a dove and a platypus, and it was just wonderful story. And so we sanitize it. So what, what I'm just going to try to do is I'm not going to assume that we know the story of these people. We're going to try to get into looking at the story. So with that, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, let's read. By faith... Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age. Since she conceived, or since she considered him faithful who had, who had promised, therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as innumerable as the grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, they greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak this way make it clear that they're seeking a homeland, and if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But it's very, but it, as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, or prepared for them a better place. I want to jump in real quick. Before I do, I want to make a statement that some of you guys might have noticed in verse 11, depending upon what type of translation you have, um, there, is some, um, subtle, there are some subtle nuances in the English text, some ambiguities. In other words, what I mean by that is you might have, depending upon the translation you had, 
some question as to who the actual subject matter is in the particular verse. Some translations would give the illusion that it is Abraham, that the text is actually talking about Abraham. Uh, Other translations imply that it's Sarah. She's the subject of the text. I'll give you a couple examples of what I mean. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but the ESV assumes that the subject is Sarah. Again, it says it this way. It says, by faith, Sarah. Uh, The NIV assumes that the subject is Abraham. Uh, The New Living Translation kind of does a little bit of a both. It kind of, again, leaves some room, I think, for the ambiguities. It says this, by faith, even Sarah conceived. So it's ambiguous here is, was it the faith of Sarah that allowed her to conceive, or was it the faith of Abraham that allowed his wife to conceive? So you're like, what's the big deal about this? Really none. I'm just going to point out that there are some ambiguities in the text and the actual original translation or in the original Greek that kind of get translated into the English text. But the reality is, is it doesn't really change anything as to what we're going to be looking at. Because either way, both Abraham and Sarah were both commended by God. Both Abraham and Sarah uh, were very old. (laughs) Both Abraham and Sarah received a miracle. And both Abraham and Sarah trusted God. Both of them. So regardless of who the subject is trying to imply or insinuate within a text, uh, both of them are going to be commended by God. Both of them are trusting God, and both of them really desperately needed a miracle in order for this whole thing to take place. That is, uh, Sarah having a baby. So with that being said, I want you to jump back, because I want to read the story in Genesis. Uh, jump back in the book of Genesis, start at around verse, or chapter 12 is where we're going to pick it up. Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to just run through a handful of verses, because uh, what I want to tell you about is when Abraham first kind of started his career, God called him out of a foreign country. The name of this country was the Ur of the Chaldeans, uh, otherwise known as modern-day Iraq or ancient Babylon, uh, most scholars believe. So Abraham, by most scholars' account, was an idol-worshiping pagan. He wasn't anything special. He wasn't like seeking God. He wasn't up on a cliff, you know, praying, being like, God, what is your will for my life? None of that. Abraham was just some common, normal, pagan dude that was trying to live his life without God, and God shows up and speaks to Abraham and says, Abraham, follow me, and I'm going to take you to a whole new land, and I'm going to give you a lineage. You're going to have a family that's going to grow, and out of your family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, Abraham had no idea really what the path was that was ahead of him that he was going to encounter. You can imagine, like I said last week, make for some very interesting table conversation. You go home, tell your wife, we're leaving tomorrow. Where are we going? I have absolutely no idea. Why? Because God said, who's God? Somewhere up there. I have no idea. I just met him yesterday. Okay? So you just met God yesterday. He spoke to you, and he told you to go someplace. We have no idea where we're going. That's exactly what I'm saying. Pack it up, woman. And so make some sandwiches. And that's what happened. They ended up hitting the road and started making their way across this massive desert on into the area of the uh, promised land. So as they go there, God then speaks to them about verse, or chapter 12, and we're told that at this particular stage in life, when God initiates this promise, he basically says, I'm going to bless you, you're going to have a family. Uh, Verse 3, it says this, I will bless you, and I will bless those who bless you, and bless, dishonor those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Next verse, it goes on to basically tell us, or next section, it tells us that Abraham was 75 years old. So just the time when most dudes start to retire, 
start to think about finding a pool and just kicking it and laying out next to it for the rest of their existence. Abraham was just beginning, 75 years old, gets a word from God, tells his wife, we've got a whole new chapter in our life. I have no idea what it's going to be written about. I don't know where it's going to go. I've never seen the land. I don't know anything about it. All I know is that God's a pretty big God. And he says, go. And he said, all the nations, the entire earth are going to be blessed through my life. What does that mean? I have no idea. So let's go figure that out. Let's go. So that's what ends up happening. 75 years. Take a look at chapter 16. We jump forward now by about 10 years. Abraham is 85 years old now. Nothing's happened. No babies. No babies. It's kind of hard to bless the whole earth with no babies. So what are you going to do? Uh, I don't need that. That's okay. Uh, so what are you going to do? So Abraham is basically trying to, you know, figure things out. So Sarah, you know, his faithful wife, is also trying to help him out. She's like, well, you know what? I think maybe for us to bless the whole earth, we probably got to have a next gen. And we don't even have a kid. So maybe we should help God out a little bit. Let's, how about, you know, how about you take my handmaiden, you know, her, my servant, have sex with her and have a baby. You know, sound good? Abraham's like, that's an excellent idea. I mean, I mean, let me tell you something. Guys, guys, if your wife ever suggests anything remotely similar, this is the perfect opportunity to say no to your wife. Most other occasions, wives normally speak good, sound wisdom like my wife does. But this time, there is nothing but a fail. This was a fail. This is a Sarah Old Testament fail, all right? And he shouldn't have obeyed her, but he did. And it ended up creating Ishmael. He was their son. And this was not the son of promise that God had intended. So you jump forward now a handful of more years, going on to about chapter 18. I'm going to pick it up right there. It says this. And then the Lord appeared to him, that's Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and he looked. And behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran to the tent door to meet them. And then he bowed himself to the earth. Jump down about verse 9. It says, and then he said, or then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in a tent. And the Lord then said, I will surely return in about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. Just in case you missed the first little phrase, they're old. To emphasize it, that means, i.e., well advanced in years. It's as if the Spirit of God is trying to make sure we catch this. These people are, it's impossible for them to procreate. And I'm not even sure how adept they are at age 99, all right, to even do that. So it goes on to say, then he said to him, uh, where is Sarah, your wife? She said, "Is in a tent. Then the Lord said, I'm going to come back this time next year. You're going to have kids. Sarah and Abraham were old, well advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure it's funny to me how oftentimes it's repeated in the text. Notice that? How many times the Spirit of God just wants us to know how beyond impossible this is. It points out they're worn out. It says, Abraham, my Lord, he's an old guy. She says, how can I even have pleasure? I'm like, we be, I'm beyond that. I'm a grandma. I'm really old, but I don't have any kids. I should be a grandma, but I'm super old. I don't, I, I don't, I'm not going to have pleasure in this anymore. I'm well advanced in years. Verse 13, it says this. The Lord then said to Abraham, 
Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Listen to this verse, 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Listen to that. Is anything too hard for God? The word Lord that's used there, it's all in capital letters, which signifies the covenant name of God. It's basically God saying, is there anything? Is there anything that's too big, too beyond, too hard, too difficult, too remote, too far for me to take care of? That's the question that God's asking. His whole point is that regardless of how old you are, regardless of how beyond the realm of plausibility or possibility, God's point is that nothing's too hard for me. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. So Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but he did laugh. That's where the story ends. It's just kind of a funny story. Go on down to about chapter 21, and here's what it says. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. I love that verse. Listen to it again. He says, and the Lord visited Sarah just as he said. And the Lord did to Sarah just as he had promised. It's like God didn't have to put those, that little parenthetical statement at the end, a little addendum a little footnote. He could have just said, Lord came, Lord did. But God wants to make certain that the, way, the reason why he came is because he said he'd come, and the reason why he did is because it's part of his promise. You understand that? What God does is in accordance with his word. What God does is in accordance with his power to fulfill, his power to perform. We serve a great, big God, and that's the point. So it goes on to say, says, and then Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah had bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son when he was on the eighth day, and then as God had commanded him, Abraham was a hundred years old. And when his son Isaac was born to him, and then Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have had said to Abraham that Sarah would have nursed children, and yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So here's the picture. Here's Sarah sitting in her tent, 90-year-old lady. Abraham's 100 years old. And here's Sarah in this tent nursing a baby. And she's absolutely in shock with this. She's like laughing. She's like, this is absolutely beyond normal. God did this. This is God. This is a God thing. God gave us exactly what he promised that he would give us. So the reality is this is the story. This is the narrative of what's happening that the writer of Hebrews is basically saying, do you remember Sarah? Remember what God did with Sarah? This is it. This is what's happening. So with that being said, I want to now kind of bring to conclusion some, of, some thoughts about what confidence in God had brought about in their lives. So again, take a look at this. Go back to the passage in Hebrews chapter 11, because what's important for us is to note, is again in verse 11, it says this, by faith, Sarah received power to conceive. So in other words, the reason why she gave birth at an old age, why she was capable of having a baby at an old age, was because God gave her this. It was a gift from God. And she trusted God. She had confidence in God. And we said this from the very beginning. That faith really is, 
It's a positive reaction. It's a positive response to God's promptings or God's initiating, God's revelation. In other words, when God speaks, when God reveals, when God shows up, when God says, when God does, and we respond to that in a positive way, in a way that says, yes, Lord, that's faith. In a way that says, I'll go, Lord, that's faith. Even though you don't see where it's going to head, even though you don't know what's going to take place or how it's going to all end up and how it's all going to sort of uh, come together and work out, you just know that God will do it because God is a big God. He's a great God. And that's the emphasis of the text. So with that being said, there's a handful of things that sort of give us even further clues as to what faith accomplished or what faith did for them in their lives. The first thing I want you to notice that faith produced in both Abraham and Sarah, especially in Sarah, in verses 11 to 12, is faith produced both patience and power. Both patience and power. Take a look at the first thing, the idea, the concept of power. It says this, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. So God did a miracle in her life by her trusting God. In some ways, it kind of reminds me of like Peter. Remember the story when Peter walked on water? I mean, obviously, human beings don't possess any intrinsic ability to walk on water at all, right? But by faith, when Peter stepped out of the boat and into this sort of unknown reality, just because he was doing what Jesus said, come out to me, Peter did it, and he was able to do something that was absolutely out of the ordinary. It was extraordinary, extraordinary. It was not natural. The opposite of a natural thing would be a miracle. Miracle can either be God uh, moving quickly, natural proponents of life, and moving them in a fast propel type of a way, or a miracle can be something in which God exercises principles that we're, we don't even know of. We're not even aware of. God just exercises them, and things happen. Things change. Things take place, like a 90-year-old lady having a baby. So by faith, God not only gave power, but he also produced this concept of patience. Now, I want you to think about this. Remember when we first started this in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis? How old was Abraham then? Because remember? Because remember? 75. Okay, from beginning, from initiation, all the way to the time when Abraham was himself hanging out with his tiny, tiny little baby Isaac. How old was he? He was 100. It's the time difference. 25 years. Okay, I, I want to put this into perspective for you guys. You, you need to think about this. Because we oftentimes, we live in this culture that is always pressing us to expect instantaneous results. It's just the culture we live in. We're, we're basically um, conditioned to believe and conditioned to expect things to happen instantaneously. And God does not always operate that way. So we say things like this. And you're like, I've been praying for the past three days. Nothing happened. I'm really frustrated with God. Or, you know, I've been doing this for the past six months and nothing happened. And I'm frustrated with God. Nothing took place. I'm, I'm bailing on this whole entire thing. But the reality is, put 25 years into perspective. Can you imagine 25 years praying for your woman? Couldn't have a baby that wanted to have a baby. 25 years asking God to allow you to have a baby, and you had to wait 25 years. 25 years, imagine. Some of you, Quest all started this week, right? Is Quest the students here? You guys starting this week? All right, next week, sorry. Imagine being 25 years in Polly or Questa. Some of you are like, 
I'm on that track. All right? Word of advice, get off that track. That's a bad track. Uh, it's a really bad track. You shouldn't be on that track. Uh, something's really wrong. The, but imagine 25 years of hoping for something and it never comes to you. 25 years praying for a spouse never happens. 25 years asking God to save your children or save your parents or save a loved one. 25 years of asking God to get you that career that you went to Cal Poly for for however long and you never got it. And you're still waiting. 25 years, I want you to think about that. 25 years is how long it took from conception, call, ultimately to where it was finally finalized to where Abraham had his baby in his hands. 25 years. He learned patience in the middle of that. Turn forward in your Bibles to the book of James. Just about one page. One page. James chapter 1, verse 2 says this. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. When you meet various trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, testing of your faith produces patience. Do you get that? God is actually using circumstances in our lives to test our faith. Don't think of tests in terms of a bad way. Think of tests in terms of stretching faith, in terms of something to bring about completion, because the rest of that verse goes on to finish up, and it says this, but let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect or complete, lacking in nothing. So God's objective in your life is to allow certain things for the purpose of testing faith. Sometimes people that are like into programming, software testers, they test software, they create what's called either an alpha or a beta version. The purpose of that is fools download it and it messes up their computer. Like I've done that before. And you're like, this is not working. Something's wrong with my computer. It's because you're in a test of software. And the point of the matter is to get other people to use it to figure out bugs so that the code can be rewritten so that it can be complete. God uses circumstances in our life to test our faith, to complete us in him. It is part of his package. It's part of the journey. Do you know that in God's economy, the way that God looks at our lives, it's not the ultimate end that God has in mind? I mean, it is. That's something that God ultimately is working everything out from. But God is, in fact, I would even go so far as to say, more interested in the journey than he is in the ultimate end. The journey will be attached to the end. And the reason why I say this is so important is because if all God cared about was the end, then the moment we said, Jesus, I trust you, God could have pulled us out of this world and brought us to himself, but he didn't. He allows us in this world to stumble, to struggle, to have a hard time sometimes, to endure, to engage this whole unknown process of asking God for things and us getting the answers that we're not always wanting. To struggle, to know what it means to go without, to struggle to know what it means to suffer, to struggle to know what it means to endure, sometimes even physical malady, or have to live with the reality of not getting what my heart so desperately desires. It's all part of the journey of God forming us, fashioning us in the image of his son.
Do you know that Jesus knows exactly what it's like to ask something of the Father to be rejected? Do you know that? Do you know that? In the garden, Jesus prayed, Father, take the cup away from me. Please, if there's any other way, please remove it. The Father's response was no. No. And Jesus' response to the Father was, I'm done with Christianity. This was his response. His response was, nevertheless, not what I will. But since your will is the grace, your will be done. It's as if Jesus would look to the Father and say, you're my treasure. You are my home. You are what my heart is anchored into. You, you are the solid rock upon which everything in my life is built. Without you, I die. Without you, I don't live. Without you, there is no life. You are all in all as if what Jesus would convey and want his followers to understand about the Father. Do you live like that? See, the reality is that we so oftentimes live with this mentality of we come to God because in reality we have, if, if, you, if you're like me, and we can be like this, and it's very subtle, where we oftentimes pray things like this. We're like, God, if you do this for me, if you help me out in this, you know, if you do this thing for me, if you get this job for me, if you get this girlfriend for me, if you get this career, if you get this scenario, this house, whatever, then I'll, I'll give you my life. We're, we're kind of like barters, right? We're like making deals with God. It's not how God works. You know, what that really does at the end of the day, what it proves to us, that God's not our ultimate treasure. Other things are. God is just the means to our ultimate treasure. Do you understand that? God does not want to make us idolaters. So sometimes God says no. Not because he hates us, because he knows that should he give us what we so desperately want, he knows that our hearts will love that thing rather than him. God does not want to make idolaters out of us. He wants to make us into worshipers. He wants us to find ultimate pleasure in his greatness alone, not in other things. You understand that? So sometimes the father says no. Sometimes the father says, you're not ready for it yet. You've got to wait. How long? 25 years. So I want to remove any plausibility, any possibility of you taking credit for this. So I will wait until it looks as if there are all human possibilities are just marginalized and impossible. And it's as if God's waiting to say, then I'll work, then I'll move, then I'll come in, then I'll show up, then I'll do it because I alone will get all the glory. And you know, that's how God works. Maybe that's what God's doing in your life today. Maybe that's what you're going through right now. Maybe that is why sometimes you feel as if the things that you are asking God to work in your life or give you in your life, he's just saying no because he doesn't want to make you an idolater. You see his love in that? He actually loves you. That's why he says no. So we see, first of all, that faith really produced patience and power. The second thing that we see in verse 13 First part of that is faith gave sight and expectation. First part of that says this. These all died in faith. So what he's going to be doing now is he's going to sort of like a summary statement. It's as if he started the chapter, verse uh, 1, chapter 11, and he's kind of working his way down, and he gets to this particular verse, and it's almost like a junk drawer statement to say, hey, everybody that I've been talking about up until this point, Every one of these people up until this point have been going through the same types of circumstances, same types of things, and uh, all of them, all of them, 
have never really obtained what they were all really hoping. But they held on to God. All of them were trusting God. Here's what he goes on to say. He says, all these died in faith, not having received the things that they promised, that, that were promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. So his point is this, is that these people did not, I mean, Abraham, you know that Abraham, when he moved to the land of Canaan, never built a city, never saw the next generation raise up, grow up, build big fortified walls, never saw this, never did. It's kind of crazy to think about this, but here's this guy, Abraham, is very wealthy, and again, I said this last week, and it wasn't because Abraham lacked money or lacked resources or lacked technology. He had it all. Very wealthy, had a lot of money, had a lot of men working for him, a lot of strong, able-bodied men to build cities if he wanted to, but he didn't. He received none of the inheritance that he was promised. It says he died in faith, though. So the point that I think is trying to be conveyed is that there's something that these guys saw and they looked forward to, they expected. Okay, now you gotta look at it this way. Abraham lived thousands of years ago. I said this the very first study that we did in looking at the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, is that faith has sort of a transcendent element. What I mean by that is that it's not limited to time. In fact, faith has an element that's both past and future, meaning there's a sense where we look in the past and we look at what God has done in the past, but there's also an element where we look in the future and we bring the past and the future together in the present and we live this out now. Now, you know, Abraham, really all he had, for the most part, was the future. He was looking to things that were promised him. He didn't have a whole background. He didn't have a Bible to read. I mean, he couldn't have, like, devotionals. Um, Oswald Chambers didn't exist back then. He couldn't read Spurgeon. He didn't have MP3s to listen to. All he had, all he had was this little promise that God says, pick up, move, take your family, all your wealth, go live in this land, and you'll never obtain what you're ultimately going to get, but at least you're getting into step one. Your kids one day will. Because through your kid, through your kid, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Never received it. But he died in faith. Here's what it says about him. It says, this faith and confidence gave him sight and expectation. The word sight literally means perception. He looked forward and he had some sense of perception that God was doing this. Oftentimes the way that we think in our culture is we have this mentality of, you know, I'll believe if I see. Show it to me. You know, reveal to me where it's all heading. Give me the picture of where it's going to lead me or take me. I want to know details, right? And we want to know all the specifics about it. And once the specifics are agreeable to us, then, then we'll follow. Then we'll go. Then we'll invest, right? It's very interesting because faith actually works sort of inverted to that. And in other words, God basically says, believe and then you'll see. Believe and then you'll see. And that's what Abraham does. He steps out, he responds to God's word, even though he doesn't really know exactly what's, what it's all about. And as a result of that, he's able to see, he's able to perceive and expect it with great expectation. He greets it, it says, with just great expectation. He's looking forward to it. He's looking forward to what God will do. Now, I want you to think about this for us, living today. Most of the stuff that we have confidence in is not in the future, most of our faith is firmly rooted in the past, past tense. It's rooted in the cross. 
It's rooted in the resurrection. These are not fables, they're not stories. They are historical events that actually happened. So we have confidence in these things that took place in the past. But there's also an element in which we look forward to the future. But I would say predominantly the majority of what propels us, gives us trajectory, moves us forward, compels us, drives us, is rooted in the past. Let me ask you, is it easier to have confidence in something that happened in the past or something in the future? I think it's easier to have some confidence in what happened in the past. I mean, you can look at it, you can read it in the books, you can read people's lives. There's eyewitnesses cruising around being like, I saw him, I saw him, he changed my life, he was there. And you can have confidence in that. And the point of the matter is, is when you have confidence in God, you begin to perceive and see what God is wanting for us to do. And there's an expectation that comes along with that. The third thing is this, verse 13, the latter part of that, it tells us that they, the faith also made them strangers and exiles in this land. Take a look at the latter part of verse 13. It says, but not having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles here on earth. So they realized, you know, I mean, Abraham was very tangible in his lifestyle with regard to what it meant to live as a stranger in exile. Remember, Abraham chose not to live in walled cities. He makes a purposeful uh, attempt throughout his entire life to avoid walled cities, even when his uh, nephew Lot and him were kind of having issues with each other and they kind of divided. Lot says, I'll go hang out by Sodom, that walled city. And Abraham's like, mm, I'll go find a hill. Pitch my tent. And I'll hang outside. That's where, that's where I'll live. And that was sort of a very tangible witness for Abraham to say, I'm not going to put my roots in this world. A city is a place of identity. It's a place where culture is done. It's a place where life happens. And basically, it's way of Abraham's way of saying, my life, my culture, my identity will be associated completely with God. That's what I'll put my eyes upon. Peter, Jesus' good friend, apostle, writes in the book of 1 Peter, he says, we Two are strangers and exiles on this planet. It means we live in this earth, but this earth really ultimately at the end of the day, this earth, there will come a day when there'll be a renewed earth, but this earth is not our real home. Not our real home. In a very real way. What we need to understand though in terms of balance, that doesn't mean that we mistreat it. That doesn't mean that we mistreat the parts of this earth or the reality of this earth as a whole, but in reality, if we understand the fact that we are passing through, because we are stewards of God, because we have God living over us, God is over us, we are under him, we are submitted to him. That means that everything that we have in this world that has been given to us has been given to us to be a good steward of. So if you're the person, as an example, that when you leave a hotel room and it looks like your house and it's messy and messed up and destroyed, or you rent a car and you crash it, and you don't really care, you abuse it, mistreat it, it's a pretty good indication that you don't have a very clear concept of any type of authority over you, because you think you can take advantage of anything and just mistreat it and abuse it. But if you recognize that everything we have in this world is a gift from God, we take good care of it. So Christians really should be people that take the best care of everything in this world. Take the best care of people that are hurting in this world because God is God. That being said, they recognized as they lived on this planet, they were exiles. 
looking forward to another country, another dwelling place in which God is the Lord. The fourth thing I want you to notice is this. is faith brought about a proclamation and a clarification of what's ultimately important in their lives. Verse 14 says this. Wrap it up very quickly. It says, for people who speak this way, make it clear, that they're seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Notice again, it says this, for the people who speak this way, they make it clear. So there's something about the people that he's been referring to up to this point, that there's something about what comes out of their mouth and about the clarity of their lifestyle that makes it very, very crystal clear what these people are all about. I'm going to put it this way. There are two types of people in this world. There are those people that are very clear in what they're passionate about. Um, I would even go so far as to say they proclaim, just like these people did. They proclaim, they speak, they convey, they preach. They're evangelists. You know that every human being is an evangelist? You know that? All of us are evangelists. Sometimes people kind of give Christians bad rap. They're like, you know, Christians were tired of them preaching. Well, what about eco-friendly people that always preach too? They preach an eco-friendly gospel, right? They preach you got to use recyclable bags, all right? And that's cool. I'm into saving the environment. I like the planet. It's a great place. It sure beats all the other options. But the point that I would make is this. Everybody preaches. Everybody has a message that they proclaim. The reason why we do that is because we are image bearers of God. You know that God preached? The very first thing God said was he preached the earth and the universe into existence. He spoke and everything created. You know that Satan also, as a counterfeit, also preaches? He came to Eve in the garden and he preached to Eve. And he says, did God really say? Did God really mean all the things that he said? And he literally presented an alternative gospel, an alternative means to find life. You know that? And I would even go so far as to say that all of us, as image bearers of God, all have a message. Every last one of us preach. All of us. The question is, the first types of people are those who preach with crystal clarity. There's some people you can think about in their life, in your life, and you know very clearly what they're all about. They preach it all the time. All right, these are people maybe that are into music. They love music. One of the reasons why they love music is they go to a concert and go into concerts where everybody's singing and having fun. It's kind of like a church service. Concerts, concert venues, concert venues are sort of like the holy space. It is the sacred spot on planet Earth where everybody goes. They converge. The lead singer of the band, he's got all the charisma. He's almost like a mediator. He's the one that speaks. He's the one that when he sings, the words and the lyrics that he proclaims actually give narrative to people's lives. They listen to his narrative. They're like, that's, that's it. This is why I follow this guy. This is why I love this guy. Because his words in a song give me meaning. And I'll proclaim, I'll preach it, I'll post on my Facebook, and I'll tweet about the guy because he's amazing. And should, should God forbid the leader of that band die, life's over. I mean, go to Graceland. People are still devastated that Elvis is dead. Why? Because he was like a god. People preached his gospel. They still do. Am I saying there's anything wrong with music? Not at all. Think about sports. Some guys are really into sports. They preach sports. 
Go to sports events. They're all into sports. In church, they're all mellow and quiet, sit on their hands. They don't want to say anything because, God forbid, anybody find out they love Jesus. And what ends up happening, they go to a football game. Everything changes. They, they, they paint their face. They put weird symbols on their belly. They drink horrible beer and buy really nasty hot dogs. And they're willing to tithe and support. And they're willing to raise their hands and sing songs and get crazy and get drunk. Not in the spirit, but drunk on really cheap alcohol. And it's like a worship experience. And should the, should the team win, everybody's excited. They go home, they tweet it, they yell at everybody because they're super happy. Should their team lose, they also complain about it and they spend a lot of time praying. They pray that their God next time, next season, will actually be resurrected and win. They preach, they proclaim. Consumerism, I mean, I can keep going, consumerism. Like, is he gonna stop? No, I'm gonna keep nailing some of these things. The point that it makes is like consumerism. There, there's a false gospel in consumers, and that says you go shopping, go to the mall, go to Santa Barbara. That's where all the deals are at. If you go there, everything's on sale. You spend time and money and energy and effort. You tithe. You go worship service. You go with your friends. It's just like that sort of echo of the Old Testament verse where it says, they said to me, let's go to the house of God and worship God. Instead, we go to Santa Barbara, and we hang out, spend a lot of money. We buy things to impress people we don't even like. Money that we don't even have. And the reality is at the end of the day, what we're really looking for is an identity. An identity comes through new clothing, new stuff, new gadgets, new toys. And we're really excited about it because the next three days we're telling everybody what we just bought. That's preaching. That's proclaiming. Is there anything wrong with buying stuff, concerts, movies, sports? Nothing. Enjoy it. It's part of life to enjoy problem is is when those things become gospel for our lives we all preach we all proclaim we all have tendencies to be passionate about things but these people they spoke with crystal clarity they gave testimony from their mouth and their lives as to what was most significant most important that god was their god there's a positive aspect and a negative aspect the negative aspect first was that they said, you know what, we could have gone back, but we didn't. We won't go back. The positive aspect is that really we're looking forward to this home in which God as creator builds. That God creates this place with unshakable foundations. He's our greatest treasure. Everything else we can enjoy. Everything else we can be a part of. Everything else we can have some sense of excitement participating in, but it's not ultimate. It's not my ultimate satisfaction. It's not what I find my ultimate identity in. God is what I find my ultimate identity in. Second group of people are those that are very ambiguous with their message. They're the ones that say one thing. This is the boyfriend that says to the girl, I really love you, but in public never shows any display of acknowledgement, of love, or kindness, affection of the girl, avoids her, doesn't want to hold her hand, doesn't want, doesn't want to recognize when the buddies call up, they're like, hey, are you going out with someone? They're like, no. Uh, who's, what's her name again? Uh, I'll, I'll give you a quick little bit of advice. Girls, if you're single and you haven't had a boyfriend yet, this is the same advice I give to almost every girl I've been doing it for the past 17 years. This is it. All right, ready? Take notes. It's free. The point is, is that if you have a relationship with a guy and the guy is not absolutely sold out in respect and love and care for you, meaning he respects you, he honors you, and you know it, and your roommates know it. Dump him. 
Honestly, I'm, I'm, re- I'm really frank and honest with you. Dump him. Because he doesn't know how to convey true love to you. He is just sort of, he, there's an incongruency between what he says and what he actually does. He's a really bad evangelist. We will always proclaim and preach most passionately about those things that we find the greatest favor in life in. These people that he's writing about, they found such great treasure in God. Their lives spoke about him. Their lives paid homage to God and everything they did. There's people, honestly, that I talk to that claim to be Christians. And to be quite frank with you, sometimes I wonder, it's like, am I boring you when I talk about Jesus? You seem really bored. You claim to be a Christian, but you seem like you're falling asleep when you hear the name of Jesus. It's just like he's not exciting to you. Why? Why does not Jesus excite you? Why, when you hear about Jesus or want to talk about the Bible, why does it seem as if you're just bored? That, to me, is a pretty good indication that Jesus has really not captured someone's heart yet. That can't be forced. That can't be manipulated. You can't, you know, guilt people into accepting that or having that. The only thing that changes that is when I really finally understand what God did for me through Jesus coming into this world. Do you understand that? That's the only thing that changes our heart is when we understand our heart is melted, not by how much we love God, not by how much I do for God, not by how much I'm able to do for God, but how much God in Christ has done for me. That's what melts my heart. That's what moves me to appreciation and love and respect for great God that he is. The last thing, i wrap it up here. I'm going to have Nick come, up, come on up and we'll wrap this up. His faith ultimately gave them a desire and a destiny. Look at verse 16. It says this, Therefore God is not ashamed. It says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. So they're looking forward to a brand new place in which God is in control, which God resides. God's there. They want to be there. And here's the beautiful thing. This is sometimes troubling for some people because you know, especially the idea of heaven, it's kind of troubling for some people because some people are like, you know, I like this earth. It's a great place. There's a lot of beauties here. But the problem is with this earth, beauty is always mingled with ugliness. Pleasure is always mingled with pain. There are no crowns in this earth without crosses. That's the planet we live in. And so this concept of heaven, one day we will die, one day we will meet our midnight and we will go and we will stand before God and we will be either in a place where we are comforted by God, we call that heaven, or we will be in a place that is in torment outside of God, we call that hell or suffering. The point of the matter is, is that's not the final state. I mean, can you imagine a place that involves all the beauty of this planet earth and all the beauty of the orderliness of God. Well, that's what's ultimately promised at the end when heaven will be married with earth. And we will be given a new body, a resurrected body, not spirit body, a resurrected body like what Jesus has. And we will live with God in a place where God designed, where God's the architect. We can look at this oftentimes in our lives and we're like, why is it that God sometimes now, currently in his life, often leaves us engaged in suffering and in pain? 
Why did people in the first century, like in the book of Hebrews, have to go through pain where they lived with this hope never really completely brought about, where they never really obtained what they ultimately got? Why do we live in a life where there's a lot of sacrifice we've got to make and pain that we find ourselves engaged in and having to sort of mingle suffering with joys? And how can God be good and expect us to go through this and live with this all the while trusting him? Those might be the questions that you ask yourself in your life right now. But what I want to finish by pointing your eyes to is the God that asks us to live that life, the God that inspired writers like the writer of Hebrews and Paul the Apostle to write, urging us to keep moving in that particular motion, is the same God that sent his own son who left, who went without, who sacrificed, who gave up, who received answers to his prayer in the negative, who suffered for us so that one day, because of his suffering, through his suffering, we could obtain his glory. So that because us, as we are walking around, living in exile, as if we are foreigners, strangers in a strange land, because Jesus left his home to come become a stranger and an exile in a foreign land with us, suffer with us, he therefore now creates a way for us to actually make it home. I ask you, wrap it up now to think about this. Where is home for you? What is home for you? What are you living for? What are you devoting yourself to? Are you seeking God? Are you looking to him? Are you looking to the provision that he's provided through his son? Or are you constantly building, as we looked at last week, on broken foundations that could never sustain, that will always crumble, that will always give out, and will always, if there's one thing we can be certain of, they will always fail to deliver. And you'll never be home. The opposite of home is lost. Jesus came upon the cross and took upon himself our sin and ultimately the lostness that we live so that we can be brought home. That's how great our God is. This is why we love Jesus. This is why we're going to sing now. This is why we're going to partake of communion now because of how great our God is to bring about the circumstances to change the lostness of our condition to being found, saved, home. I'm going to pray. We're going to respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. If you're one of our guests, please don't feel any obligation to give. We give because we love this church. We're part of this church, part of this family. We want to give joyfully, generously, because we love God, because God's a generous, joyful giver. We're going to sing because the natural response of hearts that are affected by love is singing. Singing. People who love sing. We love God. We sing to God. We're going to respond by partaking the communion. The communion is a perfect example of looking past in the past at what Jesus did in dying for us on the cross, the supper that he had before he died, but it also looks forward to the future out of a great meal that we're going to have with Jesus one day in his present or his future state. Some of us are going to respond by confessing our sin, our disbelief, our unbelief. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for what you did for us. Thank you for what you accomplished for us. We now, God, uh, want to turn our hearts to a, an attitude of worship. We thank you, God, that you are not distant, but that you are here. You are here, God. You know the sorrow of our heart. You know the pain that we feel. You know the suffering that we endure. You know it. 
because you endured it. You went through it. You know what it feels to be lost. You know what it feels to have answers to prayers being no. You know what it feels to suffer. You know what it feels like to be betrayed. You are a God that is so near. So Father, as a result of that, we get a picture of you as being this great, big, powerful God who is mighty to save. So we come to you now, God, as humble servants, as humble people, humble children, confessing sin and embracing Christ and singing songs of love to you.